Saturday School is brought to you by First Republic Bank. The world is changing and your needs are evolving. As your focus turns to what matters most to you and your community, First Republic remains committed to offering personalized financial solutions that fit your needs. From day one, you'll be connected with a dedicated banker who will serve as your primary point of contact throughout your relationship with a bank. They'll be here to listen to you, understand your values, and meet you on your financial journey. Your banker can offer you solutions that support your goals at any stage, from setting up a personal checking account to refinancing household debt to buying a first home. As your needs evolve, you can call or email your banker at any time for the support you need. Because First Republic believes what matters to you matters most. Learn more at firstrepublic.com. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our season on Asian American interracial cinema. And today we're talking about the 2014 documentary Lordville by Rhea Tajiri. Yeah, I think up to this point, we've been primarily focused on films that deal with relationships or histories between Black and Asian Americans. But with this film, we have, I guess it's a film that ties an Asian American character slash filmmaker to Native American histories. But it's a lot more unusual than even that. <laughs> um, I remember when you were, we were emailing each other and you said, wait, is this movie about Rhea Tajiri and Native American ghosts? <laughs> and I, I said, I, yeah, I guess that's right. That's kind of is how the interracial uh, storyline is formed. Yeah, it's kind of like interracial... Wait, can land be racial? Oh, now we're talking. <laughs> now we're getting into some, some juicy stuff. Yes, land and ghosts and people because these are like descendants of Native Americans. But sort of like sometimes people, sometimes no people. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. Anyways, this must sound totally baffling to our audience right now. So let's bring some meat to it however we can first. Okay, Rhea Tajiri acclaimed documentarian of history and memory, she moves to a place called Lordville. It's kind of near the Delaware River boundary between New York and Pennsylvania. And she's basically thinking about this house she bought, this land that she's now living on as a Japanese-American woman. Who owned the land before her? And what does it mean to own land in the United States? Also, the way she set it up is she reminds us that Lordville is populated by a lot of richer people from New York who have moved out here as a vacation home, but also artists and Rachel Jiri herself as an artist, too. So it's a remote area. It's very lush. It's like a foresty area. A nice place to get away from the city from a certain point of view. Yeah. Population 50, I believe, at least at the time of the filming. At least 50 living human beings. <laughs> Right. How does the ghostly enter the picture? Let's maybe talk about how Tajiri sets up the film, because the film includes a series of interviews with various people who 
either live in Lordville or have some fascination with it. So there, there's like a person who seems to be a historian of sorts. There's a genealogist. They're not really like expert testimonies. They're more like ways of trying to understand this land and who owns it. Well, the interface of culture and land is always in flux and land influences culture and culture influences land. I've always said the ancestors tell us what we need to know when they're ready for us to know it and not a day before, not a second before, because there are things we have to learn. And then when something goes right, I always say that is their little gift to me to say, now you're doing it right. Each person kind of gives a different orientation into notions of ownership and land. And also like this semi-scientific historical discourse of like reading the land comes up a lot. And in addition to that, we get recordings by local native I don't, I don't even know who they are necessarily. But we get recordings of like native songs and people who are defining terms and words. All of these kinds of human ways of talking about Lordville get layered onto what we watch. And then there's also these dancers. Oh, right. The dancers. <laughs> who, truthfully, I didn't quite understand until I saw the credits. They're like on a bridge and they're making these kind of jittery movements. And I think they're supposed to represent the ghosts. They're shot in what well, looks like film and in four by three aspect ratio, where the rest of it was is very sort of digital 16.9. So their images themselves looks like a artifact of the past or like the recent past. And their dancing is jittery because it's playing backwards. Oh, yeah, I did not realize that yeah like these moments these like motions of this guy what it turns out is it looks like he's throwing something into the water but it's played backwards so you get a sense of how do i decode these motions how do i decode these artifacts history forward history backwards backwards history from the recent past all of these temporalities get tweaked around in this film yes and then there's a mannequin also sort of ghostly, right? I think they, they talked about how cheap they bought the mannequin for, but the mannequin itself is mysterious. It seems like something that's thrown away, but it's also something that is hoarded. And what gets hoarded, what gets preserved is of, of a lot of interest here, especially who gets preserved, who gets remembered. Well, some people think that it makes it seem like Lordville's haunted. Lordville is haunted. Given the layers and layers and layers of things that happened in this area, that's absolutely, I would be surprised if people didn't think they saw things out of the corners of their eyes, didn't hear things, didn't have a feeling. The film itself it sometimes feels off. It doesn't present itself as a standard documentary would, and it's kind of unabashedly also an experimental film. And Rio Tajiri is an experimental filmmaker. But at the same time, there's something accessible about this uh, because I don't think it expects us to know that much. And it's about like how much we don't know about the land and how, how we're not really conditioned or oriented to know the land. And, and that's what she wants to unpack for us here through her own search, looking at land title. The film begins with a lot of titles on the screen. Um, I'm using title in a different sense of like dates, years, people who own this property in the past. It's just too much to, for me at least, to distill and to interpret and to remember. And you realize that that kind of historical detail might not be that meaningful 
at least not as meaningful as the experience of the land itself and the people that we hear from and talk to and these mysterious sounds and these ghosts that might be inhabiting the space. Those are the histories that Tajiri is actually interested in and not necessarily like the standard history of dates and figures. So basically, she bought this house from a woman named Lamira Smith, who is the daughter of John Lord. This land was stolen from the Delaware tribes back in the early 1700s. Basically, there's like two couples that ended up owning most of the land. The family story is that John Lord got a land grant from the King of England. Two male white Americans, their wives are menacing women of the Delaware tribes. So that's already a little bit complicated there. The men technically own it, but it was stolen from the women's tribes. It's this long history of cheating Native people out of their land. Even in the very beginning, they recall how the colonists were able to acquire this land through just like this terrible deal that they struck. And then even after yeah, these white men married Native women, when the men died, the women were not allowed to inherit the land. And so you see this disappearance of original ownership over this land. And what happens to those people? What happened? It's sort of like these family, when the family tree ends at certain points, but we know it didn't end. It just didn't get marked anymore. And sort of that vestigial movement to a future that doesn't know how to remember itself anymore. Like that's kind of what, that's the ghostliness that this film is, is searching for. There are fifth generation families that still live in this area. The contemporary family members, they're of sort of mixed race heritage, but for the most part, their native identities are only remembered through little things like the fact that they all have P's for their middle name to stand for Pontitown, which is um, a term that pays tribute to their native heritage. But aside from that, the native culture has vanished. The way that the law has written native inheritance out of the legacy of their families and their lands what little traces we have of that past that Rhea Tajiri is looking for here. Yeah, and then through her interviews with folks, she, I don't even know if she was like looking for stories about ghosts, but people would just sort of talk about ghosts and places being haunted as if it was like fairly normal. Yeah, oh, and, and it seems like everybody has some thoughts on it. Right, right. <laughs> right. Like this, it's not abnormal for them to think of, to ha- have had thoughts of ghosts. Um, whether they could believe in it or not. <laughs> so what do you think about the style of the film? The film itself, there are interviews, and that's standard, I guess. But a huge chunk of the film is just us, or the camera at least, exploring land. Yeah, it's like you're going hiking with her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're kind of hiking as her, right? Like, yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. We get the sense that, I don't know if this is actually completely true, but that perhaps it's Rhea Tajiri holding this camera. Uh, or at least it gave off that sensation because it's a steady cam cinematography. So it's like very smooth as she's going through the forest, through a lot of silence. Yeah. With like the crunching of leaves and branches as you're exploring the land. A lot of sounds. Sometimes there are sounds of stuff that you can see, but sometimes there's sounds of things you can't. And so that also has sort of a disembodied strangeness to it too. A lot of this, the sounds of nature are of this kind of dampness it's like a very wet film you get like, the sound of rain of, of rivers but you also get the sense of like like a lot of moistness in on surfaces the camera itself has a sort of fluidity yeah i like the um 
the be waterness of it, right? Like like Bruce Lee would say, the way that these legacies mold themselves to new situations, and she's working her way back. Yeah, I liked kind of the ordinariness of it to the extent that you're watching it and it doesn't seem foreign, right? It's just like she's just exploring her land and really like you could do that anywhere. <laughs> it's sort of like, yeah, when you go hiking, do you ever think that hard about the land? No. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a big part of this, right? Like this is a challenge to the audience to think about land. Yeah. Um, and the the way that land, like a palimpsest, is like that there, there are so many histories of the land layered on top of each other that we just haven't really gone down into looking at. And then we have these peop- these the guys in this film that can can read root systems and be able to tell us like how many years it's been around. And this is like uh, yeah, um, that's cool. this tells us about like the, the presence of these trees tell us something about the flooding that happened here. Yeah, that was kind of cool just to, you know, there was a tree that from the root, you see it grows diagonally, but at some point it like starts growing straight. And he was like, oh, that's, that means there was probably a flood in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, I think us as viewers, we're starting, we're trying to read the land in a similar way. I mean, we're not experts on tree systems, <laughs> but like we are also looking for traces, trying to make sense of like cracks in rocks and how is this creek connected to this forest area? And we see Rhea herself like trying to make sense of of land that in some ways resists obvious human orientation. Like there's a scene in which she's holding a map of her own property and she's like walking, trying to figure out, wait, is this the end of my property? Is this, where, where does the line between mine and not mine begin and end? And like, that's, that's such a fundamental question that asks about our relationship to land. There's just a lot of emptiness in the film, right? Like you're, you're going through land that doesn't tell you where you are, that doesn't seem to be connected narratively to what we saw before or after. The film doesn't always orient us, both in terms of narrative and in terms of directional land or navigatable land. The terrain itself doesn't allow us to understand it all the time. And I think that that's very intentional. Yeah, definitely. Like, like why are we in the water sometimes? <laughs> like, like, the camera is underwater. <laughs> yeah. at, at one point, the, I think Rhea talks about, in her mind, ghosts are the sort of energy. If you think about it that way, like, the, the ghosts aren't just these static beings that are kind of waiting for us to uncover them, but they, they move also. They have minds of their own, whether it's through the dancers or through this camera moving underwater. It makes this film like super dynamic. There's an energy here that we are unable to grasp. It's moving, it's shifting. Because perhaps it's not here for us to grasp. It's not here for us to quote unquote own in that way. It's not ours for us to understand. So I think in the spirit of our season, the question that we have to ask then is what is the relationship between the story of Native American legacies that have been erased or actual Native American land owning that has been made to be illegal? What does any of this have to do with Asian Americans? Was that something that you thought about when you were watching the film? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have any answer to it. As immigrants, I mean, like everyone's an immigrant, but we're what people consider immigrants. (laughs) Like, we're also on borrowed land. Borrowed slash stolen. Yes. Yeah, it's so interesting the way you said that, because it's like, we often say this thing about in America, like, everyone here is an immigrant. And the reason we say that is to remind white people that you're an immigrant too, and therefore you should care about the more recent immigrants from everywhere else other than Europe. The underside of that is that means we are all 
settlers here. Mm-hmm. We're all here settling on land that has been taken from somebody else. Mm-hmm. And we don't often include that as part of the logic of everyone is an immigrant. And we even say, unless you are a Native American, everyone is an immigrant. And then we, f- we sort of conveniently forget about that side of the argument, the unless you are a Native American. It's like, well, what, what about if you were a Native American? Then what is your relationship to the land? And then what happens to this notion of ownership then, right? Does, does it mean that because you're an immigrant, that therefore you have some kind of a special, that your presence here should be valorized because of the hard work it took for you to move here, to make a name for yourself, to make money, to succeed in life, to, to make enough money so you can buy this house, uh, this vacation home in Lordville. That can't be the only part of this. And, and so I think it's so great that Rhea made a film that did not hide the fact that that this is from the perspective of an Asian American filmmaker. We see her in the film. We hear her. We see her name. And it's, it's a name that might otherwise seem unusual on a title that includes other names that sound very Anglo. Names like Deliverance Adams and John Lord. And it makes us wonder, are Asian Americans therefore beneficiaries of settler colonialism? Or do we continue to be the perpetuators of it as well? She doesn't go into that very explicitly, but like so much else in the film, she makes us ask questions and she makes us wonder. The same way that we're invited to read the land and read the images, we are invited to read her and her position here and perhaps to read our own. And, and I don't know about you, like these are not questions that cinema has had me ask. <laughs> and also in a lot of like Asian American community building, where so much of it is about our place in America, about our, we don't want to be invisible in the United States. But does that reaffirm a certain Americanness that is in turn perpetuating settler colonialism? And, and yeah, these are questions that, yeah, that where are the films to make us ask these questions? Right. The presence of Rei Tajiri, who is such a great chronicler of Japanese American history with films like History of Memory and also Strawberry Fields, which we talked about in a previous season, that it also makes has us thinking about the Japanese American experience and that the U.S. in their so-called relocation centers for Japanese Americans during World War II were on land that was seized from Native Americans. There's an article from PRI that talks about how a lot of the Japanese American detainees had no idea that they were on, on reservations. To them, they were just plucked out of their homes and then brought to these places. So all these displacements are happening on Native American land that historically have intersected with Asian American stories. And, and how do we continue to connect those stories to the present? I think that's a challenge that Lordville wants us to, to, to consider. I'm trying to think where there could be like a connection between Asian American stories and indigenous stories. And would it be like Hawaii? Uh, definitely. This does also kind of force us to ask in thinking about Hawaiian cinema, that kind of Hawaiian cinema that's celebrated, at, for instance, at Asian American film festivals. Are these still just films about Hawaii that are made by Japanese Americans or Chinese Americans. Because sometimes we celebrate these movies as quote-unquote Hawaiian films, but in doing so, we are still forgetting that there are native indigenous Hawaiian stories and that Japanese and Chinese Filipinos in Hawaii are themselves also settlers there. The Hawaiian Film Festival must have films from like indigenous filmmakers. Yeah, yeah. The Hawaii International Film Festival does a pretty good job at distinguishing their Hawaiian films that could be made by white people, could be made by people of East Asian descent, but that there are indigenous films made by Hawaiian storytellers 
and that they need to be celebrated in a different way. And there's also an organization called Pacific Islanders in Communication. They're sort of the CAM for the Pacific Islands. And for them, it's also very important. Yeah, sometimes they will fund films or documentaries that are directed by non-Native people. But what they hope to prioritize are Native films directed by Native filmmakers. Is this part of the whole like discussion over whether Pacific Islander should even be included in this like, AAPI category? Yeah, totally. Right. Um, and it's also the questions of AAPI, AAPIA. Because in Hawaii, why would Native American be included in that formulation? <laughs> like the Asian Americans in Hawaii, their, their relationship are as colonizer. Mm. So by putting them in the same category, you are flattening the operations of colonialism. But of course, on the mainland, somebody who is like from the Hawaiian diaspora, a Native Hawaiian person who's living in Los Angeles or something, like their relationship to Asian Americans might actually be more meaningful as a coalition in the mainland context. So it's like in these different contexts, these terms and alliances mean very different things. But it also makes me think about like, you know, when you're in America, in the American bubble, you think of colonizers as white colonizers, right? right. But like in Asia, like, and we're from Taiwan, the colonizers are Japanese <laughs> and Chinese, right? Well, no, yeah, right. Like both of our families have long histories in Taiwan, right? Like we are like the, the Benson, right? But we are also, like, even these, like, Benson, who people considered, like, native to Taiwan, are also settler colonists there who displaced the indigenous people, the indigenous tribes of Taiwan. Right, right. <laughs> I think it is interesting for us to think about because it's a weird space for Asian Americans, right? Because I think when you grow up in America, you, you are considered a minority community. But if you think globally, you know, like the number of Asian people around the world, we are the majority, right? So yeah. it's like weird to kind of think about like I feel like these terms and how we relate to them it's like tricky because it could be like flipped in a second <laughs> you know what I mean are you the colonized or the colonizer <laughs> like both kind of right <laughs> like totally yeah and also we learned a lot of these bad habits of the colonizer from Asia that in so many Asian countries there's also colonialism happening like for instance like in Japan you have the Ainu people in Taiwan you have the aboriginal people in Philippines like there's tons of indigenous tribes but those people from Japan, from Taiwan, from the Philippines who moved to the United States aren't necessarily the indigenous people of those countries. So these immigrants who have privileged from colonialism in their home countries are coming to the United States with perhaps that kind of logic there too. So why wouldn't it be perpetuated to Native Americans in their new homes? I think it just goes back to sort of like for so long, a lot of these discussions of race in America have been very like black and white and you don't know where the other races fit in and everybody has kind of different ideas, right? And it's also shifted through time. So it's just another, I think it's just another way of thinking about our place in the United States that we often don't think about. The United States has this myth of the West, which is that this is land that is open, that is free, and that we come here and we settle and we make the most of our of our resources and our abilities and we succeed. But that the United States isn't this open land for us to settle and take. To what extent are the myth of immigration, the narrative of immigration that even Asian Americans have bought into is dependent on the fact that there are no natives here. And if there are natives, that it's okay for us to get rid of them. And does the immigrant myth also perpetuate that myth of clearing the land for our own gain? Yeah, yeah. 
what Lordville reminds us is that our relationship to the land isn't just about getting in touch with nature, right? Like, I, I think there's a sense of that a lot of people in America that we preserve our land and we try to keep it clean and we honor the land. But are we also honoring those who have traditionally been the caretakers of this land? And are we remembering them not just as the past, but also as enduring into the future? And then what is our responsibility in the present and the future? And that's something that like just going out to appreciate nature does not easily, does not necessarily lead us to asking ourselves. Whereas a film like Lordville, which is about uncovering strange documents and asking different kinds of questions to different kinds of people, through that kind of interrogation of the land, we might be able to get to a place where that we can more responsibly think about our relationship with this land that we have moved to or that we have grown up in. This film, I saw it, first saw it at CamFest in 2013, and it's continued to stick with me because I've bought property since then. And just thinking about when I get a title with my name on it, what does that even mean? Who has the right to even tell me that this is now mine? Like, I mean, I, there are legal reasons that they can do this, but this film makes us wonder like, what are the racial bases of the law. And so, yeah, it continues to stick with me, as well as the fact that... Um, I teach at a university, which is also like land that has been taken from native people. <laughs> and so I'm also benefiting from that to this day. So a lot of universities are land grant institutions. That basically means that there was a transfer of land that was convenient to white people. And many of the major beneficiaries of that have been universities. So what then are universities obligations to honoring this fact? or to remind students and ourselves of this fact. At my university, San Diego State University, like they, this is on their mind, and this is something they talk about a lot. Credit where credit's due. I want to shout out the book, A Third University is Possible, written by La Paperson, a.k.a. Professor Wayne Yang at UCSD, who has been such a pioneer in thinking about race and indigenous land and the role of the university. And how is our audience going to discover more about this film? Well, for our really fast listeners, like if you're listening right now, Sunday, December 13th, the Yerba Buena Center of the Arts is playing it virtually for free on their website, wbca.org. Um, there's a short Q&A with the director on their website, but you got to watch it by midnight today. Otherwise, it might be a little bit tough. I think this is a, um, a university library situation. Looks like it's available in some college libraries in New York and New Jersey. You can also ask your library or school to buy the classroom educational sales version of the Blu-ray by going to the Lordville Tumblr site. Um, <laughs> that's, that's all we got. <laughs> we're not helpful ever. Next week, we're doing a rom-com. Please watch the 2017 film Signature Move starring Fazia Mirza and Sari Sanchez. We're giving you a little fun break before we wrap up our season with our finale episode last stretch before you're off for the holidays have a great week saturday school is a proud member of potluck a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the asian american community it's produced by me and brian our logo is by grace talis lee our theme song is courtesy of rimsky music and premium beat check out our website at saturdayschoolpodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Set School.
class dismissed. We're still here and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So, what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.